Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was Monday, September 24, 1995. And just one day after Canterbury's grand final victory, the real game was getting underway, with the action moving from the playing field to the courtroom. Before Justice James Burchett, the high-powered legal teams of the ARL and News Limited would do battle for the next 51 days. At stake, the future of rugby league in Australia. This is part one of 100 nil, the 26th chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Mate, fantastic. How are you? Yeah, good. This is a big one, a big event in the history of Super League after our bonkers intermission on the Gold Coast over the last couple of episodes. <laughs> awesome uh, intermission. This chapter is going to focus on the court case which began in September 1995 and came to a conclusion with the judgment in favour of the ARL in February 1996. So this is a two-parter. In this episode, we're going to focus on the court case itself. And then the second part of this, we'll look at the judgment and all the fallout uh, as a result of it. It's uh, bringing back the memories because I was in year 11 legal studies at this point when the judgment came down, but I don't remember anything about it except for the result. I remember the result and the day in the playground and ARL supporting kids gloating about the decision. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is my big memories, the live crosses to the courthouse and all the rest of it. And just the sense that it was all over now. As we all know, and if you don't, you'll learn, it's far from being the case. But this is kind of one of the main things that you can see of Super League if you go to YouTube. If you type in Super League on YouTube, uh, once you wait out the English Super League stuff, It'll generally be a news segment, you know, relating to this case. So this is pretty monumental in terms of the Super League War. And to get started with the chapter, I thought we should put it in rugby league terms, as was done in the papers at the time. So the case was to begin on the Monday following the grand final. There was no reprieve from the end of football action to the start of the court case. And in the Sun-Herald, on the day of the grand final, Gladys Craven wrote the following... With the season ending today, it's not the end of betting on football. Cenebet, the Northern Territory-based betting business, will accept a wager on the federal court case beginning tomorrow. The ARL of four to six, news limited, even money. What's more rugby league than betting on the existence <laughs> of the game? Uh, I love the addition that Cenebet hasn't sought legal advice for those odds. It was a top-of-the-head price. <laughs> Two flies on a wall price. <laughs> Uh, but they got it right. So there you go. The house always wins. So to get started on the case, I thought we should set it up by introducing the teams involved. Uh, that's the legal teams, of course. So two very accomplished sets of lawyers and barristers, QCs. It was uh, some really heavy hitters yeah. on both the ARL and Super League sides. 
So we'll start with the ARL team, and it was a real inner circle in terms of the ARL's legal team. This was headed by Colin Love, who would go on to be the chairman of the ARL and had been the ARL's lawyer since incorporation. And along with him was, you know, people like Dick Conti, a QC, who had fought for Wests in the court case to expel them, uh, and then later succeeded Jim Comins as the ARL judiciary chairman, Alan Sullivan, another one who had significant links with the league. So there was a an ongoing connection between Phillips Street and these people in the law. It was helped by the fact that they were stationed at Selborne Chambers, just up the road from Phillips Street. And also, interestingly enough, uh, where we interviewed Kevin Ryan a couple of years ago. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of work in the rugby league field, so it's not surprising all these heavy hitters are around rugby league. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so it, it probably makes sense that they were stationed nearby. But in Mike Coleman's Super League book, he talks about the fact that, you know, John Quayle would often find himself, you know, grabbing a beer from Dick Conti's bar fridge at Selborne Chambers on a Friday night. And, you know, there was a real fraternity between the two. Uh, given Kevin Ryan's you know, noted disdain for John Quayle. I wonder if they ever shared a lift or two in those days. Oh, but can you imagine the frostiness? <laughs> Kevin Ryan's still the hardest man I've ever met in person. I know. <laughs> but yeah, so let's start with Colin Love, you know, whose rugby league bona fides are, are well established. We've mentioned on a couple of occasions that he used to take January off from his legal profession to run the World Sevens. Arthurson had actually said that Colin Love was like a brother to him. So it was a real genuine connection between the two. I look at those two together. It looks like generation one and generation two of league men, you know, like. Yeah, yeah. It's just the uh, the evolutionary chart of league men, those two. Yeah, you're right. Because that's the other thing. Colin Love was a league man. In fact, John Quayle's statement about Colin Love, he has genuine passion for the game. You don't have to tell him the history of the game when you brief him. <laughs> Is that not the legal equivalent of um, he's never played the game? <laughs> it's very true, but at the same time, given how much of rugby league ended up in the courts, it kind of helps have a genuinely passionate league man by your side. We joke about it, but it's one of the most important things in league. I mean, just go back to the David Smith CEO debacle, like... Yeah, and it's something that we've talked about, you know, somewhat derisively, like the need for rugby league people at the top. But all the evidence when they go outside of that, you know, seems to suggest you do need a rugby league person there. With the power-broking types in rugby league, you can't sustain the white anning if you don't know about it. Yeah, exactly. And so that was, of course, to serve Colin Love well over the years, even past the Super League drama. So inside the ARL, he was referred to as the Monsignor. I like the names that the top brass at the ARL had at that time. You know, Arco was the Pope, John Quayle the Canon, Bob Abbott the Bishop. <laughs> so he was important to serve not only as the ARL's chief legal advisor, but someone who'd be somewhat of a legal translator to blokes like Ken Arthurson over the years. He was the main figure in terms of ARL and the law, but we'll just briefly touch on the rest of the team. Uh, one of them who was to make himself well-known in the press in this era was Mark O'Brien, who was a Channel 9 lawyer who had been brought in for the fight. Uh, and this was to cause some tension with the ARL with the sense that he was always getting in front of the press, to which he replied that, well, I was asked to do that by Channel 9 to be, you know, a kind of legal spokesman. He's still at the heaviest of heavyweights for defamation law, like the king of it. Yeah, right. So he's still pretty active to this day, is he? 
if lawyers have a skirmish, it's lawyers that go to him, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's funny if you remember back to our Great Compromise chapter and the drama that was to engulf the ARL and Channel 9 with the Kerry Packer deal. It would have been awkward in the months following that where Mark O'Brien was there when Channel 9 was pretty, you know, poisonous to people inside the ARL. Yeah. He maintained that he knew nothing about that case. He was kept out of the loop. But I think there would have been some frosty receptions for him at the time. Absolutely. And the big guns, I guess the two non-rugby league men who had been brought in for the ARL's case were two very prominent, very renowned QCs in Jim Spiegelman and uh, Bob Ellicott. Well, Spiegelman became the Chief Justice of New South Wales, so he's a hardcore uh, judicial figure. Yeah, exactly. And Ellicott, just as renowned. An interesting thing is the fact that during the dismissal, Gough Whitlam in 1975, they actually both had a stake on opposite sides of the ball. So Spiegelman had spent some time serving as Gough Whitlam's personal secretary, while Bob Ellicott uh, was actually an opposition frontbencher who'd written an opinion piece in the Herald arguing for justification for the political process that was to set the whole thing into motion. And according to him, John Kerr saw that and it was actually an influential article which which led to everything that happened. So wow. uh, just a little piece of trivia there. Well, it's good that they cut their teeth on such a minor case <laughs> so they could be prepared for this big one, the Super League War. <laughs> I wonder if either of them thought that maybe bypassing the federal court and going straight to Lizzie would have uh, been a better <laughs> way to go. I would love it if Liz had to rule on Super League. Well, she was the patron of the rugby league, so surely that gives her some grounds to intervene. I think she would have been an ARL woman. <laughs> but let's turn to the Super League side. And I guess the Colin Love of Super League was John Atanaskovich, who we've talked about in previous chapters. Uh, he'd been Rupert Murdoch's legal advisor since 1977, you know, very prominent in the law in Sydney and someone who was there pretty much all the way, all through the Super League saga. Well, in your notes, it says that Rupert Murdoch was so impressed by his intellect that he had to have him as his personal advisor, right? Yeah, yeah. That's how smart the guy is. And the rugby league players are referring to him as Mr. Bean. (laughs) Yeah, so that's the other interesting thing here. So uh, in prior chapters, uh, we've noted that the players, I think this was in Newcastle, uh, referred to him as John the Mexican. The other nickname he got from the players was uh, Mr. Bean, due to a perceived likeness to Rowan Atkinson's character. Which, well, <laughs> first of all, I don't know how you get the Mexican from a Slavic name, but like this guy's got the brain of all brains. He's a genius, and these guys that like push each other into bushes and uh, have buns <laughs> are calling him Mr. Bean. <laughs> But uh, it, it's funny just some of the terminology used outside of the, you know, the derisive Mr. Beans. Even in the legal profession, people who are appraising people will give them names or descriptions that could be seen as disparaging. So QC Tom Hughes described him as having a mind as sharp as serpent's teeth. <laughs> I think Colin Love was described as being sinisterly handsome. <laughs> well, was that by Roy Masters? I think it was, yeah. Sinisterly handsome. But Atana Skovich was actually the one who uh, suggested the court action in the first place. Uh, so when we talk about the war being launched via, you know, a legal writ, that was Atana Skovich leading the way on that one. So he was integral at all stages throughout the Super League War. In between driving his three-wheeled van. 
Uh, and then the rest of the team was made up of some other heavy hitters in the law. Uh, you had Dyson Hayden, who is he officially disgraced or is he in the embattled stage of his career? That guy, if you look at his name and then you look at the face that goes with it, he had to be a lawyer, right? <laughs> but uh, I don't know if he's disgraced. I just think he has a bit of a fondness for the Buller Dealers. Too fond, I think. <laughs> well, he's been in a bit of trouble lately, so not germane to our discussion, but you can look that up in the press if you want to see what Dyson Hayden is up to lately. So to get started on the court case, what we need to do is break down what was actually being argued. And there were two main things at stake. Firstly was the loyalty agreements that had been signed in February of 1995. And secondly were the player contracts, so the Super League player contracts that had been signed. So on those player contracts, basically what happened when Super League signed their players was that the Super League clubs released their players from their playing contracts in order that they could then sign with Super League. So what the ARL needed to win was to have the loyalty agreements upheld in court and also to have the release of players from their club contracts being deemed invalid. So they had to win on both of those fronts for uh, them to get an effective victory. And so we're going to hear a lot more about the loyalty agreements, but I think there's a couple of interesting things to note about those player contracts. So it was a smart tactic by News Limited. One way they thought they could get around the fact that the players were under contracts. Interestingly, what complicated the ARL's case is that they didn't have a relationship with player contracts. So prior to 1990, the ARL served as a third party in player contracts. So you were bound to the club as well as the league when you signed your contract. But because of the draft that they were bringing in, they removed that from the contract process. Interesting, yeah. So it's just funny, all these things along the way, uh, and this happens throughout the case, various decisions made at different points kind of coming back to haunt you later on. There's less mines in a Vietnamese jungle than rugby league (laughs) contracts. It's crazy. But the loyalty agreements were the big piece of the court action. So that was to dominate most of the discussion. Uh, And basically, the argument was that they were in violation of the Trade Practices Act. I mean, at that point, the Trade Practices Act, which is now what the Australian Consumer Act is, like looking at it just as a layman from corporate law, I mean, how can that be legal, right? But so much more in-depth analysis has to go into it. Yeah, yeah. In addition to reading Burchett's judgment, I've read like a whole bunch of law journals and and all kinds of uh, sources to try to get my head around it. And I'm still struggling. So what you'll see over this episode and the second part of this chapter is us kind of pulling out parts of the act and parts of the judgment that, you know, seem relevant to us or we found interesting. But if you do want an in-depth breakdown of the decision and everything that went into it, I would look elsewhere. I will put all my links up on our website so you can uh, see some of those sources. But basically, the thrust of the loyalty agreement argument uh, was this. So Section 45 of the Trade Practices Act prohibits a corporation from making an exclusionary provision. I'm just going to read this from New South Wales Uni Law Journal from 1996. The term exclusionary provision encompasses a provision of a contract arrangement or understanding arrived at between persons, any two or more of whom are competitive with each other, 
and where the provision has the purposes of preventing, restricting, or limiting the supply of goods or services to, or the acquisition of goods or services from, particular persons or classes of persons. So basically, it comes into an idea of competition, whether these loyalty agreements were restricting competition, and to get to that, you had to define who were clubs in competition with, who was the game in competition with. So this became a key aspect of the argument on both sides. Well, let's just like look at it on the surface of it. Two blokes in the pub. You've got to think, they found out about another comp, i.e. Super League, and said, shit, we better do something, forced them to sign these five-year loyalty agreements. I mean, on the surface, it's got to be a clear exclusionary provision, does it not? See, to me, that speaks more of the secondary aspect of the loyalty agreements, which is the idea of duress. That is the manner in which they were signed. But not even just the manner, like the reason for them to come about even, like the five-year... Well, this became a key argument in terms of who they were in competition with. So Super League's argument was that rugby league was its own distinct market. So basically, clubs were in competition and for the ARL to bind clubs to these loyalty agreements and to basically shut out Super League from starting as a rival competition, the argument was that that was an exclusionary provision, as you've said. So in that case, rugby league is a market within itself and you couldn't monopolise that market by binding clubs to this agreement. The ARL's argument was that rugby league wasn't a market, sport was a market, and that could even be expanded to other forms of entertainment. So I find that curious, though, that argument, because I wouldn't watch rugby union if there's a million dollars prize to watch it, you know, like, Rugby league's my market only. You know, like I can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to unpack these arguments and how Burchett saw them in part two of this chapter. But funnily enough, when it came to the appeal, and I should note that for the sake of this exercise, we're going to consider the Burchett judgment and the reversal at appeal as two separate and distinct events. But an interesting thing about it, uh, and this was. Sorry, I've lost the source, but another Law Journal article I read discussed this idea of the market. And basically, the bounds of the market were left unchallenged at appeal. So we never really got a satisfactory definition in law of what the market was, whether rugby league was in competition with itself or whether it was, you know, with other sports, as, you know, the ARL argued. Well, I'll tell you what this case was. It was a El Dorado for legal academics. It really was. There's so many <laughs> interesting uh, academic points in this. Yeah, yeah. But it's funny how much of the Burchett judgment came down to this idea of the market, and then that wasn't satisfactorily settled with the appeal, and yet the appeal still found, you know, in favour of News Limited and Super League was able to proceed. So all this discussion was basically found to be somewhat irrelevant to the final decision. Well, I'm going to sound like an ignoramus to corporate law, but I mean, I think that's a bit nebulous, this whole market definition thing. It's like, it's a rugby league fight for two rugby league comps. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah. And the other thing is that the aspect of duress was kind of, as I said, it was kind of secondary in Bachet's judgment. But to me, that was the biggest thing of all, the way these loyalty agreements were signed and the pressure exerted on them by the league and by, you know, Kerry Packer storming in and threatening to sue the pants off everyone in the room if they didn't sign. Like To me, that is like the more pertinent part of the whole process. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. But like even when I was in law, it used to blow me away how a lower court can have one judgment 
and then the higher court comes in and goes, that bloke was completely wrong yeah. in everything. We're going to flip it 100%. And that guy yeah, just walks yeah. around like nothing happened. It's like, wouldn't you be mortified if that was your decision? <laughs> this is for part two, but I'll bring it up here. like, Because that's basically exactly what happened. That's what gives us the title of this chapter is a bemused Ken Arthurson saying, I don't understand how it could go from 100 nil here to us losing 100 nil in the appeal. But that's yeah. basically exactly what happened. I mean, I guess like judges get used to that happening. But if I was Bachet, I'd be so embarrassed. I'd be mortified. Yeah, but it comes just down to like one judicial figure's um, interpretation of the act. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, this has been a, a real learning for me about the judicial system and how it works. And I've got to say, it's, uh, it's just really interesting stuff. So I'd recommend everyone at the very least going out and reading Burchett's judgment, which is easily available online. Yeah, some good reading. But to get to the ARL's countersuit, I want to start it by reading Bob Ellicott's words. This was part of his opening statement. Loyalty and mateship were so dear to the league until the treachery and avarice of News Limited intervened. The plunder of the players was predatory in the extreme. It was swift, covert, and meticulously planned. The whole operation had all the characteristics of a war game. Secrecy, nocturnal operations, false names... The tragedy of it all is that the league has been split asunder. Old friendships, old loyalties, and a distinctively Australian institution built on Australian values and traditions, an Australian icon, has been infiltrated and placed in serious jeopardy. It raises the question as to whether the Trade Practices Act applies to sport at all, whether entrepreneurs can come in and, in effect, take away the cream of sport and appropriate it to themselves, whether sport belongs to sport and should be allowed to determine its own future. Wouldn't you love to have the command of the English language like that? I mean, (laughs) that guy is just so eloquent. But bringing mateship into it, like... (laughs) This is exactly what I wanted to bring up. It's stirring words. And yeah, like, I mean, this was his opening statement. Uh, You know, they obviously went into a lot more legal nitty gritty from there. But it's kind of like dragging the public discourse into the courtroom. Yeah, but I think it sort of applies in this case too, like the culture of league applies in how the provisions are going to be applied, you know what I mean? But uh, it just made me laugh that it was like, you know, it's mate versus mate, come on. (laughs) (laughs) When I read that, I thought maybe Jeff Cousins had written that, you know, his (laughs) passionate man of the people, sport for sport's sake and all the rest of it. I don't think they can get it back from Gallipoli that fast, but... (laughs) But even like their central defense that, you know, there were contracts in place, like it kind of falls back on, you know, the honor of the contract and like keeping your word and all the rest of it. I had to love your mate and mentor Chris Murphy had an article in the Herald in October of 1995 where he said, the ARL argues under age old contract law that people should be bound by their agreements. There's something so ironic about rugby league people arguing that <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's a good point it's a very foundation of contract law but i mean uh yeah considering that they write their contracts on confetti and rugby league um... <laughs> <laughs> but to get into the day-to-day of the case itself as we've talked about before it was at this period as the case was being played out that a lot of revelations were made public for the first time so basically Anything we've talked about in terms of the April Fool's Day raid, player payments, all the rest of that, most of that wasn't known publicly until this court case. Yeah, I mean, I just don't remember the nitty-gritty of the case, unfortunately, at the time. Too young. Yeah. But what it means, basically, is that what was revelatory then isn't revelatory to us now. So a lot of the ground covered 
we've already covered in various chapters. So I guess Blitzkrieg and Phillips Street being the main ones, the Filthy Four chapter also covering a lot of this. Uh, so we don't need to go over the things again. Uh, I'd invite everyone to go back and listen to those chapters if you need a refresher. But you can see that this case, at a time when maybe, you know, the league season had ended, this was traditionally a time when maybe rugby league could be put aside and people could stop thinking about the bitterness and toxicity of the Super League war. It was kind of being rammed in everyone's faces on a day-to-day basis during the off-season with, you know, learning these players were signed at this time and then this player signed three contracts and then, you know, all all the rest of it. (laughs) Tony Chumavavi got someone else's contract. (laughs) You know, Scott Fulton had a bit of help. Uh, (laughs) All of that was being played out on a day-to-day basis. So you can really see how that would have stirred up public sentiment even more. I do remember people were against all the players getting money. The same sort of people now that would be saying, oh, man, they're doing it for their families, you know, we're up in arms at the time. Yeah, because we forget that they were going from like marketing officer jobs and like working as a tradie and then having 70 grand on top to like 300 grand. It was a big, a big jump. Yeah, exactly. And, and I can see that that would be hard for the public to make that recalibration overnight, you know? See, now it's like we just accept that they're on much more than us footballers. But back yeah. then it was like, um, well, I'm earning more than um, Gary Belcher, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I'm. <laughs> I'm Paul Sirenan's supervisor at the sportswear store, and, you know. <laughs> but it's important to keep in mind that when we talk about the court case, there's actually multiple court cases that we're talking about. So all of these revelations, they weren't just coming out in the ARLV News Limited case. It was also the case of the Filthy Four. It was also the case to determine whether Super League players would be considered for the World Cup that we've previously talked about. Uh, there were a, a number of players in court chiefly from Penrith, about their contracts and whether they'd be able to either keep playing for Penrith in 1996, having signed with the ARL, or in the case of Matt Singh and Brad Fittler, whether the fact that they'd sign ARL loyalty agreements would free them from their Penrith contracts and they would be able to play at the Roosters in 1996. So at the time, there were a whole bunch of legal cases going on and every day you'd hear more and more about uh you know, how contracts were signed and all the rest of it. So again, we've covered most of these, so I don't want to go over it too much, but there are some revelations that I think are worth talking about. One of the big things to come out of the Filthy Four case was the fact that it was complicated because three of the four had upgraded contracts that weren't registered with the ARL. (laughs) What is it with registration of contracts in this game? They do all the work and then they just forget to do the last step. Well, that Just was a stamp, a rubber stamp. <laughs> so at the time, it was reported as being like a bungle by the Bulldogs and one which could see them lose the case. Uh, but this was countered a few weeks later when Peter Moore in the Rugby League Week said this. Two weeks ago, a New South Wales Rugby League spokesman said that the people at the New South Wales Rugby League were delighted that I never registered the contracts. I would say a number of Canterbury supporters worldwide and in excess of 100,000 are absolutely ecstatic that I did not register the three contracts. By not registering these contracts, I won Rod Silver and the Winfield Cup in perpetuity. (laughs) And to go on with the reasoning behind his decision, he says, The salary cap was out of control. When the 1995 competition began, the annual audit for the 1994 season had not been done. It never was. Clubs knew this and took advantage of it. And then goes on to say about how he wanted to bring Rod Silver in 
Quayle immediately ruled that Rod could not play first grade. Immediately, despite his ruling, I won the case by giving a written guarantee that Stephen Hughes will not be picked in first grade in 1995. If I'd registered the three upgraded contracts, Rod Silver would never have played for Canterbury in 1995. In view of his outstanding performances for us in 1995, Canterbury may well have not made the semi-finals, or indeed won the unwinnable and final Winfield Cup. That's a really awesome story. Um, the whole salary cap thing is just totally forgotten in this era. There's just so much other drama going on that the usual salary cap drama is just swept under the rug. I'll tell you the funniest thing for me is that all we heard in our Bullfrog chapter was how much you loved Arco. They were best mates and, you know, his heart was broken by what happened and all the rest of it. It's like, he's your best mate of 30 years and you're actively undermining his competition, <laughs> his salary cap, doing all you can to get around it. Or gamesmanship, you call it. You're an ARL board member or New South Wales Rugby League board member <laughs> and you're actively subterfuging the rules of that competition. All of good points, Michael, but guess whose name's on the Winfield Cup? The Sydney Bulldogs. <laughs> <laughs> Another great bullfrog story I liked from this era was when he was actually in the witness box uh, giving his evidence. I'll let Mike Coleman tell the story. So bullfrog's sitting there uh, and he says to Justice Burchett, Your Honour, is it permissible for a person who is going to give evidence later on in this case to be here in this court now? There is a person in this court who will be giving evidence later. Major evidence. Quail smiled ruefully, stood up and walked out as more continued. <laughs> I didn't bring it up as a matter personally against Mr. Quail. I thought it was a fact that you're not allowed. Soon after, when the court adjourned for lunch, Bullfrog approached Quail. Mate, nothing personal, nothing personal. I just didn't think you were able to be there, Moore said. Peter, didn't you see me in there yesterday and the day before? Quail replied. <laughs> it's just so funny. League men in fish out of water. I know, I know, I love it. It's the it. best. And then Coleman goes on to say that they, you know, continued their discussion in the, you know, corridor of the courtroom going down to the lift and were seen to be at various points remonstrating each other, engaged in, in deep conversation for much of the next hour. Amazing. To be a fly on a wall for this era would have been magic. I know. And I think part two of this chapter might be my most fly-on-the-wall moment of all. <laughs> but yeah, so that's some classic bullfrog right there. <laughs> Legend. And the other big sideshow was the Penrith case, which just dragged on and on and on. Like, it was still being fought in 1997. Crazy. So various players had dropped in and out of the case by this time. You know, John Cartwright had gone off to England at the end of 1996 i tell you what's funny about that case is Robbie Beckett. Talk about timing. He come into his own as a hard-running, you-can't-teach-speed winger at the exact time they were handing out massive contracts and Australian jerseys. Yeah, yeah. And there'll be a touch more Robbie Beckett discussion to close out this chapter. A funny revelation that came out in the wake of the Penrith case. So late in 1996, when it was back in the courts, they were reporting on John Cartwright having his last game at Penrith before going over to the UK. Uh, and talking about, you know, getting the big reception from the crowd, the hometown hero, all the rest of it. Then they put the crowd figure 3,870. <laughs> How embarrassing. Cartwright was visibly moved as he performed a lap of honour, mobbed by a large portion of the 3,870 crowd. Well, that could be about four people. <laughs> I mean, a legendary figure of the game, if it have that crowd, that's disgraceful. Yeah. So Cartwright, you'll remember, broke down 
when Phil Gould offered him, I think it was $75,000 from the ARL, you know, crying about how much the game had done for him and all the rest of it. Uh, he wound up in court because when Penrith signed, he went along with them and signed for a much bigger deal. Uh, I think his player payment for 1996 was somewhere along the lines of 300000 the ARL was crying because, you know, they were saying that they did him a favor. They paid him 75 grand just because of his past services to the game. Like he wasn't going to play much longer and all the rest of it. Both sides, what are they thinking? Like just, is it a professional sporting league or a golden handshake mates rates? Like, yeah. If he's not going to play, why are you paying him anything? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, as good a player as John Cartwright is, when it's Terry Lamb being offered $50,000 to retire, you know, like Super League saying, well, don't worry, I know you're retiring, but we'll pay you anyway. I can see Terry Lamb being at the stature where, yeah, let's keep Terry Lamb in the mix. They ended up naming the junior comp after him. I don't think John Cartwright is quite at that level where he needs to be paid for leaving the game. Even if it was like payment to become an ambassador or something, but like just paying him this huge amount of money to maybe play one more season, it's just crazy business sense to me. Yeah. If your big argument is we're so good at business. Yeah. And when the ARL offers $75,000, Super League's counter to then be 300000 <laughs> <laughs> Seems like, you know, maybe they outbid themselves a few times. I mean, was it just like an incinerator running 24 hours a day on cash? Like, <laughs> uh, And let's wrap up the case itself. So the case finished late in December. As Sasha Morowitz wrote in the Herald, the Super League court case finished on Friday with a decision not expected till mid-January. With media moguls and their lawyers off to Palm Beach for the summer, this could be the first Super League free week since March. Never understood the attraction of Palm Beach. <laughs> But I love that the Super League case finally winds up. You know, it's late in December. So all the ARL needs to do is round out the year with a big PR win by announcing Jeff Muller as Gladiator's boss on the 18th. So (laughs) just reading that quote there and, you know, going back to what I said earlier about the offseason and how this court case kind of prolonged the league season and kept it on the back pages because this was still in the era where that didn't happen like it really was grand final day you know the recap on the monday and the league kind of went away i used to really hate it because i used to love you know reading phil rothfield's gossip and stuff like that every week but it was a good cleansing of the palate as well yeah when the the footy come back you were ready for it because i was like so big into cricket then as well like for me it was always like yeah me too I, i wasn't quite ready for the cricket season to start and so that always felt a bit weird and then you'd buy your inside edge and you know you'd you'd get into it as the summer went along but I do think it goes beyond just us and other people covering the game that breakdown of you know off-season and on-season doesn't really happen that much anymore like rugby league seems to still be able to dominate the back pages for most of the off-season yeah mostly for worse than better but (laughs) But so in the midst of all this, so the case winds up in late December, a judgment not expected until late January at that stage. It ended up being late February. It means that you're in this period of limbo and Super League had nothing to do but to press on as if they would be having their competition starting in 1996, the ARL doing the same thing. So you had the curious situation where both competitions were, you know, talking about their draws and their plans for the year. The ARL acting as if they would be launching their, you know, second 20-team season. Super League committed to their 10-team league. So it was a a strange period for the game. 
And in the midst of this, Super League got on with it and got their season underway. I can remember thinking, yes, of course, we need to cut teams down in Sydney. But I can remember thinking a 10-team comp, that's not going to be that cool. Like, Yeah. 10 was way too big a jump for me. Yeah. And this is one point where I think the ARL, you know, we're kind of onto something in, in this transition period. So, you know, one of their offers was to reduce the competition to 14 teams by 1998, you know, something like that, where you had a plan in place. It was going to be a good number of teams with good geographic representation, and you'd kind of put in the steps to get there. Well, yeah, the idea is great, but we'd still be transitioning now 30-something years later. If uh, Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, as we've talked about, that was always the ARL's problem. But yeah, the 10-team competition was a bit extreme. But it's funny, like, because you think of Super League being as this, you know, one-year phenomenon, and you think of everything that happened in 1997. So it's funny to go back and, you know, read through match reports of trials between, you know, Canterbury and Auckland in 1996 and, yeah. you know, seeing the Hunter Mariners and Adelaide Rams playing at the same time. I've got no memory of the 96. I just don't know what's happened to that memory. Yeah, yeah. I remember it being the most boring football season ever and uh, the awful Mega Drive game, ARL 96. <laughs> That's about it. We will be discussing all of that in our 1996 season recap which will be coming up in a few chapters' time. So you will have time to get fully versed on, in many ways, a magical season. As a Dragons fan especially, a, a, <laughs> a bit of a fairy tale story in Fatty Vorton's words where they rip the last page out. But that's all to come down the track. So Super League trials got underway in February. This is also the time where we had a Super League teamless sevens take place. So... Already now you're seeing a vision of this split future. So it would have been a weird feeling as a footy fan at that time to see this all playing out. These trials, is this the one where they had the plain jerseys? Is that those trials? They had the plain coloured jerseys for each team and just the Super League logo on the front and that was it? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. The jerseys they wore in 1996, they were definitely still meant to be sponsor-free and this caused a big furor in Auckland because... Dominion Breweries, who sponsored the Warriors, had just signed this 10-year agreement that, you know, a big part of that was their position on the front of the jersey. <laughs> I mean, how many things have been signed in contradiction to other agreements in rugby league? I know. Uh, so the DB spokesman has a good point. He said, we were there from day one and our relationship with the Warriors is more in the nature of a commercial partnership rather than the traditional arm-length sponsorship. We've looked at this long and hard and the fact is that we are one year into a 10-year contract. We want to make sure that the benefits we're entitled to under that contract, we will get. Yeah, fair point, actually. <laughs> yeah, it is. But then it caused an issue because the Warriors were scheduled to play Canterbury in a trial, uh, Canterbury sponsored by Hyundai, who noticed that they weren't allowed to have their company written on the dogs' jerseys while the Warriors were. So that threatened that sponsorship. It resulted in emergency talks between DB and Super League. They came to an arrangement that, they wouldn't wear the, you know, the sponsored jerseys in 1996. Of course, by 1997, that had changed and they did run out in jerseys with DB on the front. So, But this is this global vision company, right? Super League, it's going to be like the NFL. It's going to be huge worldwide. So we've got a global sponsor, a huge conglomerate, and we're going to piss them off immediately by <laughs> disrespecting their... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, a New Zealand brewery... <laughs> Oh, we, we can't upset them. 
mate, DB had the comp track signed earlier, so. <laughs> Sorry, Owen, do I mean you sound a few XLs or what? So this is one of the things that the trials revealed, that Super League was always going to battle against rugby league forces. As I said on a previous chapter, it's still a rugby league competition <laughs> and you're still, you know, subject to rugby league people, you know, getting in the way. So it was always going to be hard. But one of the key tenets of rugby league culture is absolute fairness. Perception of fairness needs to be overly 100% fair. Otherwise, you're going to have problems. <laughs> and to say one yeah. team could have sponsors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that goes beyond like manly bias, you know. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like what a mess. But the other thing the trials did was to introduce the public to Super League and what it was going to look like and how it would be different. So a big part of that was the rule changes. When we get to 1997, we're going to cover the rule changes in more detail and go into everything that was different. So at this point, I'm just going to bring in the rules that were introduced in these trials, some of the innovations and some of the things that were being reported here early in 1996. So in terms of the major rule changes introduced, it was the unlimited interchange, and that was true of the ARL as well, so that wasn't a big revelation. The introduction of one-on-one strips, which of course became a big part of the game from hereafter. The Alfie rule. Getting rid of striking for the ball in the play the ball. Probably the greatest ever innovation in rugby league in my view. Yeah, that was one that had to come in. The introduction of video replay, of course, and... Calling time off after tries. I think they've been vindicated on a lot of these rule changes, to be honest. But what made me laugh was when the striking for the ball went away, for at least a year and a half later, players were still trying it and getting penalised. (laughs) (laughs) Not being told one week and then never doing it again. They just kept doing it for like a year and a half. The way Super League was being talked about at this time also showed some of these ideas of how they were going to pitch the game. So the clean skin jumpers, they were talking about having a painted 20 metre red zone. They were experimenting with having quarters instead of halves. So, I mean, the latter two never really got off the ground, but it just shows you that it was clearly like an American mindset to how the competition was going to look. I think the game really needed that jolt from just like the, it was getting stale. And I think a lot of those innovations have been vindicated. I'm glad they didn't have the quarters or the uh, personalized numbers. That was a disaster. But apart from that. I'm kind of in favor of the personalized numbers. Just it kind of works to get like a, you know, oh, I really want, you know, number 47 because my favorite player has that rather than I've got number six and, you know, in a year the player I wore it for is gone and it's someone new that sucks, you know, like I kind of appreciate it for that. You and I have to disagree strongly on that fact. I thought it was confusing American garbage when it came out. Well, let's save that to 1997 because that's when that really comes into the equation. I've got the breakdown of all the players and what they wore and how different clubs approach that change. So we'll park this now. Mate, 13 is for the lock. (laughs) But I kind of agree with you that there were some great innovations and the ones that didn't work, it was like, well... We'll give them a try. We'll see how it looks. I don't think any have caused lasting damage to the game. You know, like most of them that didn't work are just footnotes. So I think you're right that it was a shake-up and it was something new for a game that was maybe a bit stale. The other thing announced at this time was, I know one thing you're in favour of, was the Gilbert replacing the Steeden. Just love the the extra distance on the kicks. Uh, But maybe my favourite was, and this speaks of 
naivety beyond even ARL levels. So uh, (laughs) when they were talking about the salary cap, I'll just read how it was reported in the Rugby League Week. Clubs will work under an honour system when it comes to player payments and salary restrictions. With each club trying to stick to a self-imposed $4.8 million cap. While no official statement has been made, all clubs have agreed to try to limit spending to create a level playing field. Oh, yeah. That's the ultimate. I mean, that, that's just a countdown to bankruptcy model. <laughs> There's something bullfrogging in about that, the, you know, never tell a lie unless it's necessary. It's like, well, yeah. I tried to right. abide by the, the salary cap. <laughs> Too funny. But probably the biggest on-field thing in terms of Super League at this time was the World Nines, which took place in late February 1996. So this, for all intents and purposes, this is the world introduction of Super League. So... The English competition was to kick off in a month or so from here. So this was the first serious look at a Super League football future. So I think this tells you something about what Super League was thinking. So it was announced in November of 1995 as part of a series of international innovations that were going to, you know, change the way rugby league was thought of. So in addition to the nines, you had in 1996, there was going to be an Emerging Nations World Cup. You had the World Club Challenge being announced, which at this stage was just to involve the top four teams from Australia and the top four teams from the UK. I wish they kept that model. (laughs) Sensible idea, really. And also the Super League Tri-Series. So, of course, that was bringing a New Zealand team into the mix to play against New South Wales and Queensland. So all of these things were announced at the same time, which tells you something about what Super League were thinking. I've got to say that their actual vision for all the derision that word has in the game, they had some good out there thoughts. Some of them are hit and miss, the Tri-Series, et cetera, but their ideas were in the right place for expansion. Well, this is where the vision doesn't match the reality. And this is something we're going to see, you know, a number of times over the next year. It's like, yeah, great. We're going to do all these things, uh, but then we're going to try to really milk this World Club Challenge concept and it's going to be a total embarrassment. The World Nines, in November, they announced that it was a five-year commitment to stage it in Fiji. By the next year, in 1997, it moved to Townsville. I think this has something to do with the fact that February in Fiji is monsoon season. Uh, And in fact, the second day of the 1996 tournament had to be called off due to inclement weather. (laughs) I don't want to hear the internet back then. You can't blame (laughs) me. So a 16-team competition, all the usual suspects. The exotic teams were teams like Morocco, Japan, Ireland. I don't remember Morocco. No, I, I don't either. I don't think they got very far in the tournament. Is this the era of just getting like rugby union players and saying, oh, here's the rules to the league? I think it would have been something like that. But yeah, Australia named a, a pretty decent squad for the nine. So I'll, I'll read out the full squad. Uh, Laurie Daly, who was captain... Ricky Stewart, Brett Mullins, Brad Clyde, Andrew Eddinghausen, Steve Renoff, Michael Hancock, Wendell Saylor, Alan Langer, Jason Hetherington, Mark Geyer, Robbie Beckett, David Ferner, Paul Green, and Simon Gillies. Decent squad. So you mentioned Robbie Beckett. This was an example of him coming along at the perfect time. So he was very much the bolter of this team. The other point of interest was Mark Geyer making his rep return after you know spending a number of seasons in the wilderness. 
the Central Coast is not quite the wilderness, but, you know, I don't get your point. <laughs> uh, and interesting as well was Canberra, you know, releasing all their top players to play in it. It wouldn't um, surprise me to see a rugby league boss go, look, I'm all for Super League, but we're not going to release our players. <laughs> yeah, and you can guarantee that if Super League had gone for a couple more years, by like 1998, 1999, you would have had clubs refusing to release their players and, and all the <laughs> usual stuff. And I think it's worth bringing up in light of what we're seeing now with Nines football, that this was an innovation that took. Well, I mean, um, how do you feel about Nines versus the old Sevens? Like, I find it just as Mickey Mouse. Me too. I can't really see much of a difference or a difference that makes it appealing to me. But knowing that it isn't for me, you know, it isn't for you, it isn't for us who, you know, watch rugby league. It's for getting new markets, it's getting new countries involved, all the rest of it. I actually reached out to the two biggest proponents of Nines football I know in uh, Steve Mascord and Michael Carboni. I had three questions for them both. So it was one... Is it Fair Denkham or Mickey Mouse? Two, in comparison to Sevens, do you think it's a better product? And three, as an international pathway, is it, you know, the best or the the most likely way forward? And what were their results? So Mascord was interesting because he was really of the same line where it's not for us, you know, it's a spectacle and it gets people involved in the game who wouldn't be otherwise. Yeah, which is great. Yeah, so he basically said it's primarily for people who don't actually like the full-form version of the sport. Who are those idiots? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and Carboni was along similar lines, but he actually argues that uh, the 1996-9s event wasn't Mickey Mouse because of the impact it had in, you know, introducing 9s as a serious concept and also forging the path to get more nations involved in playing some form of rugby league. It's a very good point, but I think you made the best point is it's not for us. And like you and I are purists, right? Uh, I get excited for the sevens and the nines whenever they're on, but every time I watch Mm. it, I feel sick like fast food, you know? But but the best point for me, besides the emerging nations, which I love, is that it differentiates us from the rugby union sevens, the most Mickey Mouse of Olympic sports, by having nine. And it's also a bit closer to the real game so the emerging nations can experience a bit more structure and this was carboni's thoughts on that when i asked him whether it was better than sevens he said i believe nines is a better product than sevens visually to the audience nines looks like it's a form of rugby league Mm. rugby sevens and rugby union look like two different sports yeah uh, whereas nines is more of a 2020 of rugby league and i think that's really true yep agreed like there's mickey mouse and there's mickey mouse if you're like us and you watch normal rugby league nines looks like Mickey Mouse. But if you really sat down and looked at it, I think it's more rugby league than Sevens was. And then the bigger point is just developing nations. So, I mean, 13 aside, you need 26 people minimum for two teams. With 26 people, you've got three nine squads. So it's obvious the difference that makes. I think it's been a success. I think we can't argue that. And Ricky Stewart himself asked in 1996, talked about it as being preferable to Sevens. He said, I'm expecting it to be a little bit tighter. With two extra players, it'll be more like 13 aside. I think you'll find nines more defensive, and that'll be a good thing. The tries will still come, but not as many soft ones. Yeah, good point. It's definitely better than sevens. Yeah. I think it's significant that this is what Super League started with. It's not a bad marketing play, though, because it's going to be razzle-dazzle. Yeah, exactly. And speaking of (laughs) razzle-dazzle, I put this in my research notes 
like ages ago and I you know from time to time seen it pop up and I'm like how am I ever going to fit this in to our narrative in any way <laughs> uh, and I realized that it's the perfect opportunity because so that I should say the nines uh, kicked off I think it was February 21 or 22 earlier that month the Australian squad gathered in Sydney for a photo shoot where the Australian nines jersey was to be unveiled so all of the top players were in Sydney and decided to kick on afterwards. A noted rugby league fan Russell Crowe was playing a gig with the rest of the 30-odd footer grunts at uh, Roselle's Bridge Hotel. And Rusty had brought along a couple of his mates from Hollywood, uh, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise. So after watching the gig... <laughs> I find it curious that he's mates with Tom Cruise because Rusty seems like down to earth and Tom Cruise is off to the pixies. <laughs> I mean, I dare say that Kidman was the connective glue there, but still it's like when you think of Russell Crowe in 1996, you know, I guess he'd just done LA Confidential, you know, Virtuosity, was that one of his around the time? Virtuosity was 95. That's the first time I ever heard of him was in a Video Easy magazine in 94 saying as an Australian going to star in Virtuosity. I'm like, an Australian in Hollywood? Like, it was unheard of. <laughs> it's Errol Flynn. <laughs> so like he was kind of on the rise he was making hollywood films but you know he wasn't gladiator then by any stretch like no i wouldn't have necessarily thought he would have been in that orbit that early well tom cruise wasn't a um unnerving creep back then either like publicly <laughs> i feel like he always had it in him <laughs> but anyway so so after the gig the cruisers crow and some of the cream of australian rugby league talent found themselves uh, sat at a table at the Bridge Hotel in Roselle, kicking back. And, like, I almost died of cringe reading this paragraph, so I'm just <laughs> going to read it on air. <laughs> a- apologies in advance, listeners, but uh, it had to go into our story somewhere. By 1am Saturday morning, the veranda had become a sea of rather badly tuned voices, as Menenga, Sailor, Mullins, Hancock, Crow and the Cruisers crowded around one table and began a long sing-song. Tunes given a workout included Don McLean's American Pie, Cole Chisel's K-San, Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run, Kenny Rogers' The Gambler, and Long John Baldry and Jennifer Warren's Love Lifts Us Up Where We Belong, which featured in the <laughs> Cruise movie Top Gun. As Cruise bellowed the line from the song, We had a love, a love, a love you don't find every day, he looked at his wife with outstretched arms, as if to signal that the lyric was especially for her. Oh, man, that is cringeworthy. But do you think you knew the words to K-San? Or? That stood out to me as well. Did I ever tell you the time I unnerved Russell Crowe? <laughs> no, was it uh, Mrs. McRae level unnerved? Oh, no, like <laughs> when you wanted to commit me for calling Sean McRae's wife about Ricky Stewart playing, uh, just I hope you kept the number for Shady Pines. <laughs> I probably haven't told you because it's so embarrassing. Um, well, you're telling us now. 2005, Rusty had a residency at the Vanguard in Newtown, mm. him and Tofog, and um, me and my mate, my best mate Dave, wanted to go see him, see, see what he was like live, you know, big Rusty fans, and um, Dave and I were writing songs together, and Dave's a really good guitarist, and I fancied myself a songwriter, neither of us could sing in tune, didn't matter, so Dave had this eight-track digital boss recorder, back in the day that was a hot thing. And um, we record our little songs and, you know, looking back now, they were embarrassing pastiches of Beatles and Oasis tracks, but I thought they were genius at the time. So I said, Dave, you got that, um, got that demo, the EP, you know, the, the four tracks? He goes, yeah. And we had a track called uh, Soldier, sort of a Red Gum ripoff. 
Party Town USA, Coca-Cola Sunsets, and something else, right? So I get a biro and write on the front of the um, TDK Gold inset, it's like a white, plain-lined um, cover. Dear Russell, look, big fan of your voice. Um, my friend and I, David, we, you know, we write songs together. And you know, if you're interested in recording a few of these, just uh, give me a call on you know, 0409, blah, blah, blah. Uh, cheers, Andrew. And um, stuck it in my jacket, and we went off to the gig. Yeah. And, and um, in Biro, I read it, in Childish Scribe. And we're watching these horrible opening acts, and it's getting really hot in there. And I, was, I was sort of sweating like I always do, and patting my forehead like Rodney Dangerfield with the handkerchief. So I went outside on the street next to the vanguard. This is like this little alleyway. I'm sort of sitting there getting a breather. This black van rolls up, and then this like chunky guy sort of just hurries past me, and I notice it's it's Rusty. And I went, "Hey, Russ!" <laughs> Didn't even say Russell. I said, "Hey, Russ!" And I could see his shoulders visibly deflate from behind, and his head <laughs> his head bowed, and he turned around, right. And he, I said, oh, hey, Russell, how you going, man? Um, look, I've got this um, demo CD here. And um, <laughs> what I'd inserted into the front of the CD over my bio uh, was uh, two signed South Sydney football cards, one of Ian Roberts and one of Jim Sedaris that I thought Rusty might like that I'd acquired at the Toronto Scorpions v. Manly trial one year. <laughs> and he looked at me like John Lennon looked at Mark David Chapman, just thought, <laughs> I'll just humor this guy. <laughs> And he goes, what's your name, man? I said, oh, Andrew. I shook his hand. And he goes, oh, nice to meet you. I said, look, I've got this demo thing here. You know, if you want to do the songs, man, just give us a call. He's like, yeah, thanks very much, man. Puts it in his jacket, turns around, walks off. Does the gig. He was great, actually, live. But that is, yeah, that's what I, that's how I met Russell Crowe. Oh, Crow. man. Man. So he's gone backstage, looked at a burnt CD <laughs> from a Boss 8-track with two signed South Sydney cards. You know those pink ones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the pink one for Roberts and it was the uh, 89 one for Sidaris, I think. Like, he's a multi-millionaire Hollywood actor. Like, where do you think that CD ended up? I wish the listeners could see how red my face is. Like, <laughs> I am so embarrassed for you. <laughs> I mean, I was 25 years old. I wasn't that young. <laughs> 25 years old and thought that was a cool thing to do. I just thought, well, these songs are genius. They might not be in tune, whatever. Of course he's going to want to record them. Why wouldn't he? If only you'd brought that demo CD along when we met Laurie Daly uh, <laughs> last year. We could have orchestrated a Bridge Hotel reunion of the 95 crew with the sing-along of Party in the USA or, or whatever it was called. I mean, just tragic. And, you know, I used to sit around in the, the Tropicana Cafe in the mornings listening to Chris Murphy tell these amazing stories about, you know, him and Rusty did this and from the 80s and Roger Rogers and all these fucking great old stories. I always try and chime in with something I've done, you know. I never said that one because it was just fucking mortifying. <laughs> I reckon if you hit Rusty up today, he'd go, that guy, I thought he was going to kill me, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I'm just like, I'm a harmless Mark David Chapman. That's all I am. <laughs> Well, without a natural point to get from there to the end, I'm just going to pretend that last five minutes didn't happen uh, and get back to Suva and the World Nines, which it's a you know curiosity now, but Australia lost to New Zealand in the semifinals. New Zealand went on to beat Papua New Guinea in the final. Before that, however, when that second day was rained out, it coincided with the day of the Burchett judgment. And so... The Australian Super League players were gathered together in a private room at the Tradewinds Hotel to await the verdict. 
Uh, and that is where we're go- going to leave part one. And we are going to come back to part two with the Burchett Judgment next week. So uh, stay tuned for that. And thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you very much. All right. We'll speak to you later. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.